Well, it is our joy once again to look into the word of the living God, and we do so by turning in our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, actually the last two verses of chapter 16 and the first 13 verses of chapter 17. Follow along as I read, beginning in Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, taking, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, arise and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I fear many times that the mundane matters of life tend to obscure the indescribably glorious events that await all of us who love Christ. All of us who long to see his appearing. We tend to get caught up in our jobs and in our hobbies and even sometimes our ministries and therefore lose sight of the exhilarating realities of Jesus return. But as Christians, we all know that the Lord has said that he has gone to prepare a place for us. Right. And he also said in John 14, if I go to pre prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And as his bride, the church, we should all long to hear the voice of our bridegroom and to see him face to face when he comes and he snatches us away in his glorious presence. And this morning in this text, I hope that you will have a reaffirmation of the glorious deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, our precious Savior. And I also pray that somehow 
as we look at this text, your, your hearts will be stirred afresh with the inexpressible joy of knowing that our creator, God, the lover of our souls, is coming again. And I believe it could be very soon. He's coming again, and I pray that we will all be swept away, as it were, from this world filled with sorrow and somehow even in our minds and our hearts this morning be caught up into the glories of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that someday and probably someday soon he's going to take us out of this place and be with him in his glory where there is joy forevermore. Let me remind you of the context of the text that is before us. First of all, in the strongest of terms, Jesus has just rebuked Peter and therefore the other disciples for whom he spoke for his selfish demand that would somehow refuse the Lord to go to Jerusalem and be killed. The Lord has admonished him to learn to deny themselves, all of the disciples and therefore all of us and be willing even to die for his sake. No doubt they were discouraged. They were confused. They they, after all, wanted a conquering king. They didn't want a suffering savior. So all of this was quite distressing to them. They wanted a deliverer from political bondage, not a deliverer from spiritual bondage and the bondage of sin. So knowing how terribly disheartened they were, the beloved Messiah, the ever gentle Lord Jesus comes to them and tenderly does some remarkable things to bolster their spirits and give them a glimpse of the glory that will someday come. Their hopes and their dreams were dashed. They thought that the kingdom was going to come now, but that wasn't the case. And here they were being asked to willingly join in with their own death march, as it were, as they take up their cross to follow him. And all they saw was doom and gloom, not the glory to follow. Life suddenly seemed dark and foreboding. And by the way, that is always the case for those who have bad theology. And so the Lord now is about to straighten out their theology. You see, they did not understand, nor have many people down through the centuries, that the Messiah was going to come in two different stages. Separated by thousands of years. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament messianic prophecies, of which there are about 1,500, you will find that they were divinely obscured with respect to these two different stages and the Messiah, uh, you know, coming again at a later stage after suffering. And this, of course, forced all of the saints in the Old Testament days to live by faith and not by sight. And to live in anticipation of both spiritual and physical deliverance. And likewise, those of us in the New Testament, those of us that are that, that, that are living now in the church age, we do not know precisely when the Lord is go- going to come and snatch us away in the rapture when this church age is over. But we are repeatedly reminded in his word that his return for us should be a comforting hope. It should not be something that we dread. And as we wait for Christ, we are told that we are to watch and to be sober. Therefore, the imminency of his return, which, by the way, means that he could return at any moment. And also that there are no predicted 
uh, events that must intervene before his coming occurs. The imminence of his return is therefore a purifying hope. That's why in 1 John 3, 3, we read that everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. Just as he is pure. And even Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. So now Jesus is revealing very clearly that which has been obscured in the Old Testament. In fact, the second coming of Christ is either mentioned or alluded to once in every 25 verses in the New Testament. This would be roughly 320 times. Child of God, please hear me. These are exciting truths. And we simply must set everything in life aside and come back to the reality that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Yes, he came the first time and there was no room in the end. The next time he comes, the universe will not be able to contain his glory. He came the first time in obscurity and in in poverty, in a stable in Bethlehem. But the next time he comes, the Bible says that all of the luminaries of heaven will be shut out and nobody will miss his glorious return. He will come in power and great glory as the majestic king of the universe, the Lord of hosts. He came the first time as a lamb that opened not his mouth, but he will come again as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. Indeed, he came first as a suffering servant, but he will come again as a conquering king. So, although Jesus must first die, suffer and die, he encourages his very discouraged disciples by saying to them that a day of glory is going to come. Notice in verse 27, this, of course, will be a day of judgment for the wicked, as we discussed last week. Verse 27 says, for the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. But then he makes a most curious statement to his disciples, one that left them confused and excited as well. Verse 28, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Now, some of some people would say that, well, does this mean that some people are not going to die until the Lord comes again? That seems to be what it's saying. But no, you have to understand this is a bit technical, but I want to give it to you because I don't want you to be confused. The term kingdom in the original language, Basileia, was a commonly used metonym. A metonym is a figure of speech that really uses one word to be substituted for another. For example, we might say uh, we might use the phrase the White House and be referring to the president. This is the same concept here. So the term kingdom is really a reference. And certainly it was in that day of, of royal majesty or or of regal splendor. It does not refer to his earthly kingdom, but rather what he's saying here is, is something to Uh, Something with respect to the majestic manifestation of his glorious splendor as king. So, in other words, some of you are not going to die until you see this. And indeed, as we study the text, we see that in about six days, Peter, James and John, the closest companions to our Lord, 
the men in the inner circle were taken up onto a mountain and they were allowed to see the glory of the incarnate Christ. You see, they were about to be encouraged in ways that they could never have imagined. The gentle shepherd always knows just when we need encouragement, right? And these men certainly needed it. He knows when we're at our wits end. And so Jesus is about to overwhelm them with the ineffable glory of his divinity, giving them an unforgettable glimpse into the future. Jesus is saying to them, in essence, you men of little faith, quit looking so sour and so sullen. Get your eyes off of off of off of the temporal and look beyond your life into the eternal. I want you to trust me. I am going to return in glorious grandeur, the likes of which you have never seen, the likes of which you cannot imagine. And truly, I say to you, some of you who are standing here shall not taste death or not die until you see this glorious manifestation of my kingdom. Now, of course, the key for anyone to have this kind of hope This kind of confidence in the truth of Scripture is to understand the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not merely a man like the cults teach, like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, nor was he just some prophet or some good person. He was the Son of God, the true and living God. And friends, might I remind you that if you have a low view of God, you're going to end up with a high view of self. If you have a distorted Jesus, you're going to have a wasted life. If you have a perspective of Jesus that dishonors him, you will end up in an eternity separated from him in an eternal hell. So in these verses, we really have five undeniable confirmations of the deity of Christ who will come again someday as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Notice the first confirmation of his deity in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 17. And I would call this the testimony of the Savior. And in six days, verse 1, and six days later, I should say, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white, are as white as light. What an amazing scene. Jesus transfigures himself before them. The term in the original language is metamorpho. We get our word metamorphosis from that, which means a complete transformation from his human form to his heavenly form. Suddenly, the indescribable majesty of the Shekinah presence of the living God blazes forth from the incarnate Christ. This was the inexpressible effulgence of the living God pictured all through the Old Testament. When God, who is spirit, would materialize himself, he would do so in the dazzling light known as his Shekinah. Moses saw it on the mountain at Sinai in the giving of the law. The children of Israel saw it as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We see it all through the Old Testament, hovering between the cherubim in the Holy of Holies over the Ark of the Covenant. This is the same glorious appearing 
that shone around the shepherds when Jesus was born. The same blazing forth that the Persian kingmakers saw when they came from the east to worship the king. By the way, it would also later appear to Saul, who became Paul on the road to Damascus. And friends, all of the saints who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb will see this great glory someday. You see, these men saw a glimpse of the same glory that we will all see in the new Jerusalem, where, according to Revelation 21 and verse 23, the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. Friends, this is a place, according to Revelation 22 and verse 5, where there shall no longer be any night. And they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them and they shall reign forever and ever. Beloved, this is the Jesus who suffered and died for us. And this is the one who is coming again to take us unto himself. The prophet Peter was also given a glimpse of this same glory in Daniel chapter seven, when the Holy Spirit allowed him to look into the future history of the world. You remember in that text, he sees a vision of four beasts. He sees the lion, which represented Babylon. He saw the bear, which represented Medo-Persia. He saw the leopard that represented Greece, the Grecian empire that would someday come under Alexander the Great. And then he saw a most dreadful beast that de defied description, a beast that symbolized the Roman Roman Empire that would someday come and rule and then be defeated and diffused and divided into what is now modern day Europe and once again will be revived just before the Lord's second coming. That will be that kingdom that will be comprised of ten kingdoms and ten kings. And then there will be an eleventh one that Daniel and other texts remind us of that eleventh one being the Antichrist. Now, I want you to notice the similarity in description of what Daniel saw in Daniel chapter seven, when he saw the vision of the son of man, which, of course, is a reference to Jesus and the father, who is the ancient of days. In verse nine of Daniel seven, the spirit of God speaks to us through the prophet and says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Verse 13 goes on to say, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented to him. And to him, referring to the son of man, was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all of the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. So Peter, James and John are suddenly in the presence of the glorified Christ. Actually, he's not glorified yet, but he's allowing his glory to blaze forth forth. What an encouragement this must have been. What a testimony of the deity of Christ by the Savior himself. But notice there is a second testimony of his deity, and I would call this the testimony of the saints. Verse three, 
And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now, friends, think of this as if the Savior's confirmation of his deity and foretaste of coming glory weren't enough. Now, all of a sudden, here comes Moses and Elijah. They appear to him. They're talking with Jesus. And obviously, the Spirit of God allowed Peter, James and John to recognize who these men were. Well, you might ask, I wonder what they talked about when they were talking with Jesus in those moments. Well, they talked about the very issue that Peter, James and John did not want to hear. They talked about Jesus' upcoming sacrificial death and departure. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, the Gospel of Luke tells us that in Luke chapter 9 and verse 31. It says that they were speaking of his departure. By the way, that is the the word exodus. They were speaking of his exodus, his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, friends, think of this. Here is Moses, the great lawgiver, representing the Old Testament, representing the law and the prophets in the Old Testament saints, an early witness of the glory of God, that great leader that led some two million complaining, whining, murmuring, rebellious, faithless of God's chosen people. Out of the bondage of Egypt. And now here he stands in the presence of the Savior who would lead another, even greater exodus out of the grave and lead his chosen out of the tyranny of the kingdom of darkness and out of the bondage of sin. And then also there is Elijah, that fearless defender of the law, God's chosen prophet, the great miracle worker who could also affirm the magnificence of the incarnate Christ. Both of these great leaders now, these great leaders of God's covenant promises, now, by their very presence, testify to the glorious redemption that was soon to take place. Now, of course, this was all too much for impetuous Peter. Dear Peter, I love this man. He reminds me of myself all too often. Perhaps you as well. Now, think about this. You see, it was the Jewish month of Tishri, which is our October, six months before the Passover, when Jesus would be crucified. And the Jews were at this time celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes known as the Feast of Booths. And this, of course, commemorated the exodus from Egypt and their wilderness wanderings that Moses led. It was a week-long memorial festival celebrating God's preservation and deliverance of his chosen people. And during this time, the people would build little little huts, little little tabernacles out of out of uh, branches. And they would live in them for this week, symbolizing the, the temporary dwellings in the wilderness. Now, because of this, because of the fact that this was the season of the Feast of Tabernacles and Peter is thinking, my goodness, you know, there's Moses and Elijah Uh, I I, I guess we need to build some tabernacles here. By the way, this is a classic example of what happens when you allow your emotions to dictate your theology. And then determine your worship. So what we see, especially if we look at Luke chapter nine and verse thirty three, you don't need to tell to turn there. But here's what happens. Luke tells us that as Moses and Elijah were parting from him. So, in other words, Moses and Elijah begin to leave the Lord. Peter now speaks up and we see what he says here in verse four. 
of Matthew 17. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, we might also give Peter a little more credit. Maybe he was caught up in the excitement of the glorious kingdom and he was thinking maybe it really is going to be here and and maybe the Lord isn't going to die. And, and maybe he was remembering Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 14, verse 16. We read at, at, when the Lord comes again and establishes his kingdom on earth, it says, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. By the way, folks, this is the only Old Testament festival that we will celebrate during the millennial reign of Christ. And so someday we will all know much more about this great festival. But notice verse 5. God the Father now interrupts Peter's misguided suggestion born out of raw emotions and out of his ignorance. And in verse 5, it says, while he was still speaking, in other words, God interrupts him, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, friends, thus far, we've seen two testimonies to the deity and the glory of the incarnate Christ. We've seen the testimony of the Savior in his transfiguration. The, the saints, secondly, uh, with, with Moses and Elijah, the testimony of the saints. But now, thirdly, here we have the testimony of the Father in verse 5. It's interesting that he uses virtually the same words that he used at Jesus' baptism. And here, again, the Father confirms the, the divine nature of Christ, calling him my beloved son. In other words, this is the one, my beloved son, that is of my very essence and my very nature. This is the one with whom I am well pleased. And it's as though he's saying to Peter, James and John, listen, guys, stop trying to push your own agenda. Accept the fact that the glorious kingdom is yet future. This is the Lamb of God that must be sacrificed for the sins of the elect. Listen to him. He has already told you clearly in chapter 16, verse 21, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. In other words, be murdered and be raised up on the third day. Listen to him. Well, obviously, this got their attention because in verse six, we read that when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. Friends, this is always the proper response for those who truly fear God with a reverential fear. We will fall on our faces before divine revelation. We will humble ourselves before the truth of divine disclosure. The very revelation that we have before us this morning. That's an interesting note. No doubt. Peter remembered the thunderous voice of God coming out of the cloud of glory because later on he warned the suffering saints in 1 Peter 4, verse 11, saying, whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. And later on, he says, so that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
My, what a sobering reminder to anyone who would dare trifle with the truth. So what an amazing scene. Peter, James, and John on their faces before God, trembling in fear. An unforgettable lesson. A preview of the second coming, forever carved into the granite of their minds. And it's interesting that 30 years later, Peter would use this experience as evidence that his words were unlike the words of the false teachers. In 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, he, he defends the, the veracity of his teachings. And there he wrote, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So indeed, Peter never forgot this incredible scene. How could you? So with his three disciples now consumed with paralyzing fear, the gentle Jesus administers his tender mercies to them. Notice in verses seven through nine. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now, the Jewish multitudes were already in a lather to follow Jesus, but all for, for all the wrong reasons. You see, they wanted, again, a conquering king, not a suffering savior. And like so many people today, they were thinking only of their physical, temporal needs, not their spiritual, eternal needs. You see, they wanted him to conquer the Romans, not death. They're not thinking beyond the immediate. And Jesus knew that if Peter, James and John prematurely went out and started telling everybody what they just saw, it would only add fuel to the fire of the people and ignite a firestorm and they might try to take him by force as their as their king. By the way, folks, nothing's really changed in 2000 years, has it? People still continue to follow Jesus for what they can get, excluding forgiveness, not what they can give. Somehow the glory of his sufferings and, 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 and the majesty of his second coming are for the most part obscured in a, in a newly invented Jesus. One who is nothing more than a cosmic bellhop heeding the snaps of our selfish fingers. But folks, this is not the real Jesus. The glorious second person of the triune God is not one that somehow we manipulate and certainly this scene on the Mount of Transfiguration rails against any blasphemous distortion from any apostate teacher that would have us believe that somehow Jesus can be manipulated and coerced by clever formulas. You know, like this whole word faith movement where you visualize what you want and then you speak it into existence as you release the force of faith. A bunch of silliness. So we see the testimony of the Savior, the testimony of the saints, the testimony of the Father. But there's a fourth testimony 
in this text that confirms the deity and the glory of Christ. Now, folks, before we look at this and we see this as we look at the whole scene, I just have to say, listen very carefully. We're really on holy ground here. We need to take our shoes off, so to speak. This is precious because before us we have an unimaginable scenario of the combined testimonies of the Savior, the saints and the Father that really give us a symbol and a preview of the second coming of Christ. Let me explain. Notice these elements. Here we have the lowly Jesus transfigured. Suddenly manifested in his majestic splendor. We see again the, the, the brilliant effulgence of his deity blazing forth in the radiance of his Shekinah. Well, what's, what do you think is going to happen at the second coming? The same thing. Jesus said of himself in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign, which again is the Shekinah, the, 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 the Shekinah of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So here on the mount, we see a preview of what will someday happen. Also, here we see... A divine metamorphosis that occurs on a mountain. Likewise, we read about a mountain in the second coming. The prophet Zechariah in chapter 14, verse 4 says that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Moreover, here we see that Jesus is joined by two saints. And we know that when Jesus comes again, when he returns, he will come with his saints, according to 1 Thessalonians 3.13 and Jude 14. But he will also come to his saints, 2 Thessalonians 1.10 and Revelation 21, verses 3 through 7. And when he comes to them, he will intimately care for his own possession, even as he attends to his precious disciples, Peter, James, and John. Don't you see the parallel? Here, Jesus is accompanied by Moses, who died, but also by Elijah, who did not die, but as you will recall, was taken up into heaven by a whirlwind. Now, catch this. I believe here Moses symbolizes all of the saints who will have died before the Lord's second coming. And Elijah represents those who will be alive at his second coming, those who will likewise not die, even as Elijah did not die, but be snatched away into heaven at the rapture. Here we have God the Father glorifying the Son as he speaks out of a bright, uh, out of a bright cloud that overshadows them. And the prophet Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 4, Verses four through five, that when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory there will be a covering. 
Friends, what a marvelous preview of our Lord's return. Every single event in this glorious scenario is a picture, is a symbol, is a preview, a foretaste of what will happen when the Lord returns. What a wonderful prospect awaits all of us who have been joined to Christ by grace through faith. Knowing that a day is going to come when our salvation will be completed. A day of indescribable glory. We don't see it all now, do we? Though we can see much of it in his word. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, mirror referring to the scripture, the glory of the Lord. In other words, we can see some of this glory as we look intently into the mirror of scripture. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed. There's the same word. There is a metamorphosis that occurs as we appear into the glory of the living Christ through his word. And he says we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. You see, friends, right now, our vision of the glorified Christ is is somehow obstructed. And yet, as we look at Scripture, it is unobstructed and it is intimate as we get close to the mirror of Scripture. That's the concept in that text and, and, and see his perfect representation manifested. And so as we continue to to gaze at the radiance of his majesty in the light of his word, we gradually become ever more conformed into his glorious image. Well, there's one final testimony. We see this in the testimony of the forerunner. We've seen the testimony of the savior. We've seen the testimony of of the saints, the testimony of the father. And we've even seen here now the testimony of the symbol. But now we have the testimony, lastly, of the forerunner. Notice verses 10 through 13. His disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? By the way, the scribes of that day had really embellished Malachi's prophecy that Elijah was going to precede the Messiah. And so they were looking for the actual Elijah, verse 11. And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. You see, naturally, since they had just seen Elijah, whom Malachi, the prophet had predicted, in Malachi 4, verses 5 and and 6. Malachi predicted that Elijah was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Well, they they just saw Elijah, and so they're thinking, well, why didn't Elijah come before you? We're, We're confused. And so Jesus explains to them that Malachi's prophecy did not refer to an actual reincarnated Elijah, the prophet, but one who would be like Elijah, Who was John the Baptist, one who would come as prophesied to John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, the one coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. 
And Jesus had even earlier said in Matthew eleven fourteen that John the Baptist was Elijah who was to come. So, friends, here's the point. Here we have yet another confirmation that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the very one whose way was paved by the prophesied forerunner. And so these three witnesses were chosen to see the radiance of his glorification because soon they were going to see the horrors of his humiliation. I want to try to make this very practical to you in the remaining few minutes that we have this morning. Friends, think of this. You know, only those who love Christ are able to rejoice in the presence of his glory. If you don't know and love Christ, this is nothing special to you and you will never see his glory until it's the time of judgment and then it's too late. But those of us who love Christ could see the glory of Christ in his word. And there is a gradual metamorphosis that occurs. In fact, in Romans 12, too, we're told not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Again, transformed is the same word It's metamorphosis. So there, what the text is saying and the grammar would indicate this is that the renewing of your mind by the power of the word will cause a metamorphosis to, a ha- to happen within you. You won't even recognize that it's happening. But I would also say that as we look at this, Christ only reveals himself to a few, but he conceals himself to many. Isn't it interesting that the Pharisees weren't there and the scribes, just three men, ordinary men. And I think of this today, even today. All of the great religious leaders, and we've seen this with the Pope's funeral We've seen the crucifix everywhere and you notice the cross on his casket with the big M next to it, because for the most part, Roman Catholicism and that M stands for Mary, uh, for the most part is a Mary cult. And you see them taking mass, which continues to to re-crucify Christ over and over again. How sad. You see, those people and many like them still see Jesus in his humiliation, not in his glorification. But friends, we serve a risen Savior, a glorified Christ that sits at the right hand of the Father. And most religious people, even in in this scenario that we see today, most religious people have never seen even a glimpse of the glory that is found in the light of the word. They're, they're, They're spiritually blind. Very few have ever looked at the light of the world, namely the Lord Jesus, and found salvation. And likewise, here's something else that is sad. Far too many believers, I fear, see precious little of God's glory because they spend most of their life kind of wandering around in the darkness of the world. They're not abiding in the vine. They're not renewing their mind. They're controlled by their emotions, so they're up and they're down. And they yield to their lusts. And the Bible says they're like little little children tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. They have no discernment. And then they accumulate for themselves teachers that will tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. You know, if that is you, dear friend, you may truly know Christ and by his grace someday enter into heaven. But you know nothing of his glory in this life. And that is sad. Because you're spiritually undisciplined 
and you're lazy and you're apathetic and you have no appetite for the Word of God and you have no secret devotion to God. You say, well, Pastor, you know, that's me many times. What should I do? You know, my recommendation is that you would do what we see modeled here. What, what, what happened in this scene? Friends, what you need to do is steal away on a regular basis to some lonely spot and do business with God. And you do it often. You seal out the hustle and bustle of life and you seek his voice. You, 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 you immerse yourself in his word and you see his glory. And as you communicate with him, as you separate yourself from the crowd, because he's not going to be in the crowd. He's not going to be in the stadium. He's not going to be in the concert. He's going to be in the lonely places. You need to come away to the mount and he will reveal his glory to you in the solitude of his presence. And there you will find sweet communion. Oh, child of God, we are to be reflectors of his glory. And what is it that causes a Christian's countenance to shine bright? Well, it's not titles. It's not religious robes and vestments and funny little hats. It's not running around doing rituals and, 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 and burning candles. Dear friends, the countenance of a Christian only shines when, like Moses, that person has spent long hours on the mountain in the presence of the glorified Christ. May I encourage you to that end. And I close this morning with an old hymn that I discovered. By the way, I love old hymns. Mainly because they were written by pastors and theologians who knew the word and who were students of Bible doctrine rather than the contemporary music today that for the most part is written by anyone who has a flair for poetry. But the old hymns were written, by the way, to to exalt Christ, but also to equip the saints. There was always a, a didactic purpose to them, unlike the superficial Theological ebonics that is found in most contemporary Christian music, which is typically, by the way, written as as personal testimonies to be sung to an audience, as opposed to the classic hymns, which were praise songs that were addressed directly to God himself. And they were composed, by the way, to engage the intellect and secondarily the emotions. By the way, it's indicated in several places that I've read of late that very few of these hymns have been written in the last 70 years. Sadly, music that contains objective doctrinal truth, I believe, has been sacrificed on the altar of subjective experience. People are more concerned with somehow inciting the emotions than engaging the mind. But here's an old hymn that I think beautifully summarizes our text today. It's out of print. We don't even know who the author is. It's entitled, Son of Man, to Thee I Cry. And I'll close with this thought. He who wept above the grave, he who stilled the raging wave, meek to suffer, strong to save, he shall come in glory. He who sorrow's pathway trod, he that every good bestowed, Son of Man, Son of God, he shall come in glory. He who bled with scourging sore, thorns and scarlet meekly wore. He who every sorrow bore, he shall come in glory. Monarch of the smitten cheek, scorn of Jew and scorn of Greek. Priest and king, divinely meek, he shall come in glory. 
He who died to set us free. He who lives and loves in me. He who comes whom I shall see. Jesus only, only he. He shall reign in glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, again, we humble ourselves before these marvelous truths and we rejoice in them. Thank you for what you have revealed to us in your word. Thank you that we have had a glimpse of Jesus' precious second coming. Lord, may we live in the light of that glory, knowing that it could be today. Lord, may we all be ready. And I pray especially for some sinner that might be within the sound of my voice. Oh, God, how I pray that you will move upon their heart with such an overwhelming sense of their own sinfulness that they will cry out as the publican did, have mercy on me, on me. Oh, God, I am a sinner. Lord, may they come to know you as their personal and living and glorified Savior. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.